KPEW, LP, Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming online at WVEW.org. Happy Sunday, everyone. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. And we also have podcasts. You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes at Indigo Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. My name is Anna Milani, and I am a local educator, and I'm here with Henry in the studio. Hi, I'm Henry Zucchini, and I also am a local educator. And today we're talking about um, concentration camps. So last week on our show, uh, we focused on the reality of Honduras and Venezuela and the impact that U.S. policies are having on those countries, both historically and present day. And we wanted to talk about uh, that kind of continue the conversation, but, but using um, concentration camps to, to frame the conversation. So uh, much of what's being spoken about today on the border and the crisis of the border, so-called, is that, that what we're dealing with is a humanitarian crisis. And while that is the case, it clearly is a humanitarian crisis, we want to try to put the concentration camps at the border in a broader historical context. In other words, looking at who's benefiting, who's losing from this reality, how does um, our economic system of capitalism play into the reality of concentration camps historically in the United States are these exceptional or are they are they these concentration camps part of a pattern and so I think what we'll see today is that the concentration camps at the border are not exceptional they're actually part of a, a long-standing pattern in US history and I wanted to give a short shout out to an article that was this was inspired by a news article that came out on counterpunch which is counterpunch.org.org, and the news article is by Brett Wilkins, and it's, a, it's entitled A Brief History of Concentration Camps in the United States, and it got us at Indigo, Indigo Radio thinking about this in a broader historical context and how could we think about what's going on on the border in terms of larger systemic forces and not just um, solely as a humanitarian crisis. And so we're going to start the show just briefly, with, as we usually do, with a quick song break. And then we'll be back. And when we get back, we'll talk about some of the historical examples of concentration camps in the United States. So we'll look at um, concentration camps of Native Americans, of Japanese Americans, of African Americans. And then we'll, at the last part of the show, we'll segue into the current situation of the border and try to, try to look at that uh, systemically um, and, and through a historical lens, not an ahistorical lens. Do you want to add anything else to that, Anna? No, I think that's it. Uh, we're going to go start the show with Rebel Diaz, Crazy, and we'll be right back. I promised I would rap like a superstar rap. Spit like a monster, put myself on the map. First rap in English, then rap in Spanish. Get look at through these more I cause damage. International, worldwide resistance in my lyrics. Walking down these mean streets to the house of spirits. Yo represento lo que canto mis canciones. Amor, justicia, hip hop, revoluciones. Listen here, we done preaching to the choir. We stayed on the block, took the neighborhood higher. I guess I just listened to the little voice speaking. The one that said, never deny what you're seeking. It made me a believer, que todo es posible. Mi flow como la lucha, siempre sigue. They call it ADD when you wildin' that don't listen. They make you think you're crazy and you question they system. Crazy, cause I look different than you. Spark fear at the corner, your peripheral. Call me crazy, like I'm the violent one Living in the empire that was born off the gun Now that's crazy, what I'm supposed to do When they shut the stores down and there ain't no food Now that's crazy, like I'm the violent one Living in the empire that was born off the gun Call me crazy Crazy is as crazy does Attack the industry with a chainsaw for a crazy buzz What's crazy is 254 fair Trying to get iced out, but there's snow everywhere Yeah, a cold world we living in Old girl, hemp and camp, general Minus the boneless chicken and the soulless victims Homeless conditions Why fight my brother when I could beat the system? I write six scenes in 16 minutes Impossible That's what it is, but I know what isn't Crazy, the words Garvey spoke The same slang as Malcolm, man There's too many quotes The wolf licking the blade thinking it's Kool-Aid Bloodthirsty, turning out cells into slaves What's crazy is you in a gang But won't do a goddamn thing When the police bang on the corners We learn how to hang with no more nooses, just mad trees, the same old thing. What's crazy is how they control our brain. The demonic songs that the radio play. You a revolutionary? Yeah, it's all good. But they don't know you in the hood. What's good? That's crazy. 
And I don't got no time to look it Crazy, my straight jacket on crooked Now that's, that's crazy, crazy. Cause I look different than you Spark fear at the corner of your peripheral Call me crazy Like I'm the violent one Living in the empire that was born off the gun Now that's crazy What I'm supposed to do When they shut the stores down and ain't no food Now that's crazy Like I'm the violent one Living in the empire that was born off the gun Call me crazy Like I lost my marbles Like all I wanna do is criticize and argue Like my screws loose cause I say what I want to Shit, say what I got to Es por eso que canto Queremos un cambio En eso andamos Yo creo caminos No creo en obstáculos You say I'm loco and need a doctor I say let's be realistic And do the impossible Check it out I'm on a higher plane Some say it ain't sane I say it's okay Let your mind sway Ride the wave Better that than on land And stuck in one place They want you sedated Drugged and medicated More paper in the pockets Than the drug fabricators All indicators show our society sick Disease by greed That's the diagnosis Now that's crazy Cause I look different than you Welcome back You're listening to Indigo Radio On 107.7 FM Brattleboro Community Radio And that was Rebel Diaz Crazy Indigo Radio has found You can never go wrong With Rebel Diaz Henry I know you love that song Can you tell us What you like about that song? I like it to start off the show today because it's talking about systemic forces and and the and they mention them explicitly. They're like there's a imperialism as a systemic force that the, this country was born at the point of a gun, something along along those lines. And so, a lot of what we'll be talking today in terms of concentration camps, uh, both historically and the and in the present day on the border, are are there because of historical forces. And while it is a humanitarian crisis at the border, this humanitarian crisis is fomented by very powerful historical forces of capitalism and imperialism. And so we want to try to frame what's happening at the border in those in those contexts. And Henry, you're a teacher, a history teacher in Brattleboro. Can you tell us what concentration camps are? Sure. Well, I think what I'll do just to make it easier on us is to read the definition because um, Brett Wilkins in his article in Counterpunch just simply pulls the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, definition of a concentration camp. And I think it's actually pretty spot on. So if it's all right, I'll read it. Um, yeah, go for it. It says a place in which large numbers of, of people, especially political prisoners or members of persecuted minorities, are deliberately imprisoned in a relatively small area with inadequate facilities, sometimes to provide forced labor or to wait, await mass execution. Um, and then it goes on to say the term is most strong, strongly associated with the Nazi uh, concentration camps during World War II. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I'm glad that you just added that because right before the show we were talking and I was saying that my always growing up, my initial and maybe only uh, point of reference was the Holocaust and um, having that term concentration camps linked with the Holocaust. However, I'm wondering if you can talk to us about some historical examples of concentration camps actually in the United States. Right. That's great. So I think that's kind of one thing that happens a lot of time when young people learn history. And I learned it the same way you did. The only time I ever heard the word concentration camp or the phrase concentration camp was in reference to the Holocaust and and what was going on there. And of course, those are classic examples of concentration camps. But the reality is a lot of what um, the Nazis did, they based on things that we have been doing in the United States. And that was fairly, it's been fairly well documented from eugenics to concentration camps to our race policies. The Nazis borrowed a lot of the, the ideas from the United States and the things that they implemented. And one of those things had to do with the early concentration of Native Americans. So in the southeastern part of the country, particularly in Georgia, you had a lot of they had what they called the five civilized tribes. And these were nations of Native Americans that actually had done, up until the early 1800s, had done a fairly good job of, of assimilating into, into white culture and kind of and working um, at least alongside of uh, white people and, not, and had not been, in the, at least by the early 1800s, had not been removed from their lands as of yet. But, but beginning in the early 1800s, there's a lot of pressure to buy the white, um, the, the incoming white folks who are moving into Georgia um, to take land away from Native peoples, including the Seminoles, the, the Creek, the Cherokee. And so even though the Cherokee resist both legally all the way up through the Supreme Court and also they resist in arms and, um, and trying to, to prevent themselves from being removed, ultimately they are removed um, both in terms of legally, in terms of the Indian Removal Act, and then eventually what's known as the Trail of Tears. And so the Indian Removal Act in 1830 is the first step. And then the Trail of Tears, the, the Treaty of New Achota, which is basically the final kind of nail in the coffin for native Cherokee lands in Georgia, what's present day Georgia, and they're forced to relocate. 
and concentration camps comes comes in because as part of the Trail of Tears in 1830, 1838 as this begins and, people, and Native Americans, Cherokees in this case, are forced to move west of the Mississippi, they, they put them in squalid, squalid camps, uh, military barracks essentially, where they trap um, Cherokees along the route. And so they'll, they'll combine, confine them to a particular um, brutally inhumane, locked in camp for a period of time and then they'll move them on to the next military installation and that's not really talked about i think when we think of the trail of tears we think of oh native americans kind of marching uh sadly across you know across georgia um into into the western part of the united states through arkansas etc and what really was happening is they were being kind of shunted between these concentration camps that were basically military forts in, in incredibly unjust and inhumane conditions and i would argue this this concentration of native americans is broadly the united states policy beginning in the early 1800s and spreading all the way through the present day reservation system thanks for that because i i agree that i feel that in, when i recollect on my history of learning about the Trail of Tears, I didn't feel like I learned about military detention camps along the way. So that's a really important point and shows that it goes way back into um, our history, but often is is lost in our historical memory, I feel. Um, Can you also talk about African Americans during the Civil War in terms of concentration camps? Uh, You had mentioned that also to me and uh, some of our learning around that is not as developed. So could you talk about what happened there? Sure, and I just want to mention one more thing before we move on from Native Americans is that the, these policies of removing Native Americans was expressly it was early early capitalism in this country, but it was expressly to to take land away to exploit um, the land and to to expropriate the land for the benefit of one group over another group. Uh, there was also a gold rush in in the southern southeastern part of the United States at this time, so it was explicitly explicitly imperialist, explicitly capitalist, at least early forms of pre-industrial capital in the United States. So I just wanted to put that in that context, too. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of African Americans, this is quite interesting and a story that isn't told a lot, but during the Civil War, um, African Americans who were enslaved in the southern states, as the Union armies got closer, as they kind of encroached into the south, um, they would often flee and as an act of resistance to leave leave their enslavers and try to get with the Union army. When the Union, when they when they would make it to the Union army, the Union army, instead of um, maybe giving them their freedom or um, asking them to join, which some of that happened later in the war. But in the early part of the war, they were treated as contraband. Essentially, they were seen as property, which is what they were illegally in the United States. These people were seen as property. And so they were they were basically, many of them were put into forced labor camps. And they were essentially early, another early version in the, in the 1860s when the Civil War begins, uh, concentration camps where they were forced to labor. And although we know the Civil War was fought, at least in part, about the issuance of enslavement, one of the other larger themes was it was really fought about the interests of northern bankers and elites and industrialists who wanted to maintain a system of, of exploitation and capitalism in the country and a way to keep the war machine rolling. In other words, to, to exert the North's power over the South, which is essentially what the North wanted to do and make sure that that capital was controlled. A w- the way to make the war effort keep rolling, which they didn't really have the access to, was to to basically rely upon, at least in part, the free labor, the enforced labor of African Americans. So that's a deep irony of U.S. history. Here you have a group of formerly enslaved people fleeing to what they think is their freedom, and instead finding that they're now enslaved in another manner in, in concentration camps, effectively within the union within the union army camps doing forced labor to keep the war war machine going to make sure that the interest of capital in the north and the interest of the war machine more broadly which is also another key part of a lot of these concentration camps reinforcing the war machine and making sure that that the wheels of the war machine keep turning using effectively uh, enslaved labor and i'm just thinking listening to you talk about both native americans and then african americans during the civil war and talking about slavery what do you feel like is the importance of not just talking about this in terms of racism uh, or dehumanizing the other, um, even though those are essential and horrific things happen to people um, based on who they are and have throughout our history, but you're here stressing that this was also in ways necessary for capitalist development. So I'm wondering if you could just tell us why do you feel like that is important to make sure that it is connected to those larger forces, our understanding? Right. I think that, uh, once again, it goes back to a lot of what we're taught. When you and I were younger, um, you're younger than me, but 
I still think this history kind of comes along in the way of how we're taught. We're taught about racism in the United States. We're taught about those things, at least on some level, less then than now. But I think if we don't see the larger economic forces, and this is maybe where Indigo Radiant, some of the people that we, we affiliate with, think about these things a bit differently. But we tend to think, and I don't, we don't all think the same, but we tend to look at the world through an economic lens. And that lens says, okay, let's, let's divide and conquer people along race or class lines in order to exploit. In, in other words, that the economic system is the thing that's driving the conditions on the ground. And so the, the economic system is, is fomenting and, and reinforcing racism. The economic system is reinforcing discrimination. Um, and so that's what's driving that. And it's pretty, I think in some ways, pretty easy to argue because when you look at the actual economic factors on the ground, you see, well, it wasn't like white people are moving in and going, oh, we don't like Native Americans, therefore you have to go away. They're like, we like your land. We like your gold, the gold that's under where you're living. And so they use the, the discrimination, the dehumanization, like you're saying to justify the slaughter to justify the taking to justify the whatever and so I, I think the economic forces are the are the powerful forces that move human beings I mean that's the way I view it and so and I think we're often I think we're blinded from that a lot and I think at our it's to our detriment because then we can't see uh, conditions like the current situation on the border in any other way than oh isn't that a horrible humanitarian crisis which of course it is but if we don't know the forces that are pushing upon that um, historically and present day, then we're, I think we're living in a bit of a, I think we're living blind to, to the realities that, that have kind of created where we are today yeah. as, as, as beings on the earth. Yeah. And I was just thinking, I feel like it's those uh, twin uh, I, or things of there's this necessary expansion for capital or in order to gain more profit, it's necessary to expand. So you're talking about here, we're talking about native Americans or, during slavery and, and the cotton industry. And it's also then reinforced with an ideology of xenophobia or racism yeah. that helps support that. Right. And I think those can get entangled, right? And yes. so that's why I feel like it is necessary what you're helping us here today is untangle some of that. Okay, we are gonna go to a song break and then we're gonna continue with the history of concentration camps in the United States and We'll be back with Henry. The song is Dead Prez, Police State. Of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state, and you, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. At the precinct, you know how we think. Organize the hood under our ching banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I wanna be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and Relying on religion for help We do for self like ants in a colony Organize the wealth into a socialist economy A way of life based off the common needs And all my comrades is ready We just spreading the seed You have a black male Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough no more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in their back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks. 
denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C-Lo for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Yeah, I was black male, third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. So the rent always be late. Can you relate? We living in a police state. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today we're talking about U.S. concentration camps, the history of U.S. concentration camps, and also that history and, and context of what's happening presently at the border. And my name is Henry Zucchini, and I'm here with Anna. Yeah, and that you were just listening to Dead Prez, the state, or police state it's called, and just part of those lyrics, I'm just going to read here what is the state the state is this organized bureaucracy it is the police department it is the army the navy it is the prison system the courts and what have you this is the state is a repressive organization henry would you say that the concentration camps are part of the state these current ones on the border or just historically or both Both. sure i think they are i mean it's funny the if you think about the early those early camps the Cherokee camps those are kind of the early manifestations of this of this and the state was nothing then compared to what it is now which is kind of interesting Um, so there were real debates at that time about what was happening even among the white elites as to whether this was appropriate or not what was happening to the Cherokee and there were court decisions even all the way up to the Supreme Court that said oh you can't actually take their land and then people just ignored it and did it anyway so Mm -hmm. there were actual debates even among the white people about whether this was appropriate or not but yeah so I think I'm getting a little off topic but yes I think the state runs all the way through this reality from then to the present day and what the state's reinforcing right I feel like you could see detention centers, confinement, concentration camps as a mechanism of the state to sure. warehouse people. Incarceration um, of exactly. African Americans, of Hispanic yeah. Americans, you name it. Yeah, right. it's the same. Yeah. So we're going to go, Henry, you've been giving us some good history here, and we're going to move into um, a bit more recent examples. I'm wondering if you could talk about well, something that's come up a lot is the Japanese internment camps. Right. And there have been a lot of uh, people that had been in those camps actually speaking out today mm-hmm. and doing some protesting around the border. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about the Japanese internment camps and how they were also an example of concentration camps in the U.S. Sure. In this case, the Japanese internment camps are quite interesting because I think that they're they're slightly different but the same. And in, in other words, they, they weren't so much labor camps, although I think there was some labor at them. These were more kind of divide and conquer camps. In other words, it was a government, um, the government trying to push back um, against any kind of possible dissent and using xenophobia to kind of reinforce people's support of the war effort. And so if you said, look at these people, they're separate, they're evil, let's put them in camps. And so for the ba- the basic story is that Japanese Americans on the West Coast, and these were Americans, not generally speaking, not, not some were recent, but most of them were actually, you know, born in the United States, um, they were rounded up, if you had Japanese, Japanese heritage, and they were put into concentration camps, essentially. They were basically prison camps. Um, tens of thousands of people were rounded up, and, and their homes were, they were taken from their homes and put in concentration camps. The interesting thing about this, this camp, these camps that are also unique is that decades later, in the early 1980s, the, the people that, that were in those camps were compensated by the United States government, something to the tune of like $20,000. So it was quite interesting of all the, the rape and pillage and exploitation of all the people that were subject to concentration camps by the U.S. capitalist state. The Japanese Americans were the only ones after decades, of course, of fighting uh, for this. They got a small bit of almost a slap, you know, like a, a you know, just a, a joke or a token. But they did at least the 20000 or whatever it was, was at least a small acknowledgement of the outrage that had been committed against their community. But 
those were not as much forced labor camps to my understanding they're more um, divide and conquer and kind of look at these are the bad people and these are the people we're fighting against to kind of you know to really reinforce the kind of the, the us versus them war effort because that the, the World War II was really the beginning it happened in World War One, too, but really the full-on industrial nature of the war and the massive amounts of profit made by war manufacturers really gets ramped up in World War Two, and we see it extremely in, in Vietnam and Iraq and the more modern wars. wars. But, but World War Two is the beginning of that real full-on kind of capitalist war where lots of profits were to be made, and so you really have to get the jingoism, the xenophobia stirred up so that people will get in line because when World War Two started, most Americans didn't want any part of it, and so how do you get the population behind this kind of insanity this kind of war machining, you have to kind of really divide and conquer, get people hating others. And yeah, so. So what happened to uh, the Japanese internment camps? When did, when did they last till and how, do you know what happened with them being dismantled or what, yeah, I what think ended they, up happening with I that? think they ended in when the, then the war ended in 45. And I don't think everyone went back immediately. I think there were some, you know, bleed over into like 46, but they were, people were let go. I think some, in some cases though, and I, and people forgive me if they know more about this. I'm sure people do or listening, but I think in many cases people lost their homes because they were, you know, much like Jewish people are living in Germany at the time or in Poland mm-hmm. who were put in concentration. They lost what, what the, whatever they, you know, what little they had. And so it had long-term effects on them and their families, you know, generational effects. So it wasn't, it wasn't just because the camps closed, everything was fine and right. hunky-dory again. Uh, the discrimination they face, the expropriation of their, of, of their property and their, their livelihoods damaged them for generations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And will you talk about the Strategic Hamlet Program of 1962? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, that's quite that's quite interesting too. That these are concentration camps actually that are taking place in South Vietnam. And for people who don't know the, the history of the, the the Vietnam War, just briefly, the United States kind of created a fictitious country um, in violation of the 1954 Geneva Accords, which basically was a, a capitalist um, South Vietnam that was created in our image. It was not really a state because the Geneva Accords in '54 required that there be a vote and there be reunification. And and the United States knew if there had been a vote in 54 that Ho Chi Minh, who was the communist leader, would have won that vote and it would have reunified North and South Vietnam. So we created a country uh, out of thin air, basically in our own image, a puppet government in South Vietnam. And part of what we did before we fully ramped up our involvement in the war, our real deep military involvement doesn't begin until 65, but we're involved heavily in other ways before 1965. Um, One of the things we did is we we supported a, a program called the Strategic Hamlet program where they rounded up South Vietnamese so-called because as I said South Vietnam was a fiction rounded up South Vietnamese villagers particularly rural people and put them in kind of fortified camps removed them from their homes in order to kind of quote-unquote protect them from communists well the truth of the matter was that was that the the Viet Cong who was which was the disparaging name it was really the National Liberation Front but the Viet Cong uh, were both in those camps and outside of those camps. And so the kind of funny thing about this is a completely failed program because they tried to wall off these villagers, forcibly remove them to protect them from communists. And the villagers were full of communists both inside and outside, because the reality is the masses of peasants in South Vietnam supported Ho Chi Minh, at least actively or passively, because South Vietnam was a creation of the United States. And so, but anyway, this is an example of a, of a concentration camp situation uh, in another country that the United States was kind of... Um, strongly encouraging the South Vietnamese government to put into place. So it was kind of under our auspices of like, let's, let's get all these you know, people rounded up and put them in concentration camps so we can ward them off from the communist infiltrators. Um, but it was a complete failure because the communists were everywhere because they were the ones that really had the upper hand during that whole conflict, which is eventually why the U.S. lost that war because they had no, no real rural support in South Vietnam because the rural support was with Ho Chi Minh. And, and of course, behavior like this, when you remove people from their homes and stick them in concentration camps, doesn't, doesn't lead to people having warm, fuzzy feelings about you. It's also a good example of the stretch of the U.S. military in that when we're talking today about concentration camps within the U.S., it's also not just within the U.S. nation or borders that right. we ha- I mean that's a whole nother conversation, but military bases all around the world, but the interventions in other countries and that we have also um, supported and built concentration camps in other places. Right. Vietnam is a good example of that. And I think right. another example that I want you to talk about is Guantanamo Bay, um, 2002. And because again, I wouldn't, 
put that word concentration camp right. next to Guantanamo Bay with what I've been taught and what the media says. So can you explain that? Sure. I mean, I think if we go back to our definition, definition, I'm going to roll back to the definition. The definition that we read from Oxford English Dictionary says a place in which large numbers of people and Guantanamo at some point had hundreds of people in this prison camp on the island of Cuba um, beginning in 2002 under, under um, George, Bush, George W. Bush during the Iraq War, uh, especially political prisoners or members of persecuted minorities are deliberately imprisoned in a relatively small area, which is camp is not very large, with inadequate facilities. They were tortured there. They had lack of access to resources. That's well documented. Sometimes to provide forced labor. In this case, it wasn't a forced labor camp or to await mass execution. Some of them did die. It wasn't mass execution in the case of Guantanamo, but but many of them did die. Um, prisoners died as a result of maltreatment at, the, at that camp. But I think it's important, uh, Guantanamo is important because it's an example also of people being imprisoned without any kind of due process of law. In other words, these people are kept in the camps and hundreds of them actually eventually are released because even in the draconian kind of U.S. prison camp system, they can't even under, we can't even under our own laws justify these people's detention. And so there's some, some of them, many of them, several hundreds are sent back to their home countries because basically they were captured unjustly they were not they had no no connection to any terrorist activity they were simply people that were caught into caught into the web of imperialism of the war effort sucked into the cia web army web and brought back to guantanamo tortured and then eventually let let loose um uh let free basically um after being severely damaged psychologically, tortured in many cases. And so I think Guantanamo is a great example of a concentration camp because it's not, it's not in any way, it's an extrajudicial camp. There's no, there's no, it's completely illegal under multiple domestic and international law. So it's an example of that. And really most of these concentration camps fall under that. They, they're blatant violations of international law. And so Guantanamo is one of those. And it shows the imperial capitalist state will do it at once uh, to control people, to, to, to foment fear, to to do it at once, and, and ignoring international law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. I think what we're going to do is go to another song break. We are going to get a little bit more into the laws. What Henry, you've started to talk about. Uh, first, we're going to go to a song, and we're going to play low key Obama Nation. Uh, and after that, we will be back with Henry to talk more about the history of concentration camps. This track is not an attack upon the American people. It's an attack upon the system within which they live. Since 1945, the United States has attempted to overthrow more than 50 foreign governments. In the process, the US has caused the end of life for several million people and condemned many millions more to a life of agony and despair. The strength of your dreaming prevents you from reason. The American dream only makes sense if you're sleeping. It's just a cruel fantasy. Their politics took my voice away But their music gave it back to me The land where the lump and are consumed by consumption Killing themselves to shovel down food in abundance I guess a rapper from Britain is a rare voice America is capitalism on steroids Natives kept in casinos and reservations Displaced slaves never given reparations Take everything from Native Americans And wonder why I call it the racist experiment Afraid of your melanin The same as it's ever been That ain't gonna change with the race of the president I see him Imperialism under your skin tone You could call it Christopher Columbus Syndrome Is it a world nation or an abomination? Is it a world nation or an abomination? Is it a world nation or an abomination? Doesn't make any difference when they form your nation Is it a world nation or an abomination? Is it a world nation or an abomination? Is it a world nation or an abomination? Doesn't make any difference when they form your nation entertainer, the world's devastator From Venezuela to Mesopotamia Your cameras lie cause they have to hide the savage crimes committed on leaders That happen to try and nationalise eating competitions While the world's been starving Beat up communism with the help of Bin Laden Where would your war of terror be without that man? Every day you create more Nadal Hassan's Kill a man from the military, you're a weirdo But kill a wog from the Middle East, you're a hero Your country is causing screams that never reach your ear holes America inflicted a million Ground zeros. Follow the dollar and swallow your humanity. Soldiers committing savagery, you never even have to see. Those mad at me, writing emails angrily. I'm not anti America, America is anti me. Is it a 
relations What matters more is the policies, I lost my patience Stop debating, bringing race into the conversation Occupation and cooperation equals profit making It's over, people wake up from the dream now Nobel Peace Prize, Jay-Z on speed Thou is the substance within, not the colour of your skin Are you the puppeteer or the puppet on the string? So many believed it was instantly gonna change There was still Dennis Ross, Brzezinski and Robert Gates What happened to Chaz Freeman? What happened to Tristan Anderson? It's a machine that keeps that man breathing I have the heart to say what all these other rappers aren't Words like Iraq, Palestine, Afghanistan The war's on and you morons were all wrong I call Obama a bomber cause those are your bomb, your bomb this is WVEW, Brattleboro Community Radio, and you're listening to Indigo Radio on the air every Sundays at noon. I am Anna Milani, and I'm here with Henry, who's a teacher at BUHS, and we've been talking about the history of concentration camps in the United States. Uh, Henry's been giving some good overview of that and connecting it to larger structures of capital and imperialism of the U.S., and Henry, can you talk a little bit about, we're going to move into the present day situation, if you could bring us to that. Sure. I just want to say that the reason I'm, I'm kind of blathering on so much and you're, and Anna's not talking as much is because she very graciously at the very end said, I'm going to come in and help you with the show. So <laughs> if it seems like it's a white male privilege, I'm just blathering on like, as a, Henry, it's, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's not that what it seems. It's more that um, she was like, hey, do you want someone to help you? And I said, yes, please. So <laughs> she came in at the very last minute to help me. So it isn't quite what it maybe seems from the, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so what were you, oh, you asked me about, so we're just leading up today for the people maybe just joining us. We're talking about the history of concentration camps. Um, we began the show with a, a definition of what a concentration camp is, and we gave uh, multiple examples of concentration camps in U.S. history. Um, the reason we're doing this is because we, we both felt as though some of the, the framing of what's happening at the border present day is framed as, oh, isn't this a horrible humanitarian crisis? And we are in no way denying that. It is an absolutely horrible humanitarian crisis, and we need to Many of us do what we can to take immediate action to put an end to it. But the reality is that these things are not, a lot of times in the United States, we're, we're, they're treated as ahistorical events, that they're not part of a systemic reality. And what we're trying to do today is put the concentration camps at the border in more of a systemic framework. In other words, a framework of capital and imperialism, and also thematically that concentration camps at the border are not unique, that we have had these types of things both in our present history and in our past history as part of the, the kind of structure and the, and the fabric of, of how this country has operated over the last uh, few hundred years, that they're, they're kind of an essential part of our nature and the way this country operates. Right. And we're going to listen to a clip by Vivia Chomsky. Could you introduce her and what we're going to listen to here? Sure. So she's a um, she's a uh, academic um, American academic historian, author, and activist. Um, she's a professor of history and the coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts, right down the road from here, just a couple hours down the road. And she here now, we're, as as um, Anna mentioned, we're going to get a little bit more into some of the specifics of what's happening at the border right now. So she, I think this clip is it's about three minutes long, and it kind of gives um, in the interview a few questions about kind of the situation on the border right now and how she sees it in a bit of a historical context, I would say. Immigrants who are being detained at the border, um, they are being detained because of who they are. And they are being concentrated in these camps where they are not allowed to leave, um, where they have not been accused of a crime. Um, they're civilians. Um, many of them are women and children. They're not prisoners of war because we're not at war. They're not prisoners because they um, are not being processed by the judicial system or have not been processed by any judicial system. They are simply being concentrated in these camps. And in that respect, that very much, these are concentration camps. Now, as someone who has studied this uh, U.S. immigration system, what do you think is the most worrisome or perhaps illegal aspect of keeping refugees under such conditions uh, in these detention centers or concentration camps? And what do you think needs to happen to change uh, the system and to address the concerns that you might have? Well, that's a really big question. <laughs> um, so the United States has always uh, cl made claims about liberty and justice for all, about uh, uh, equal rights for all. And those claims have always been false because there have always been exceptions. So when we use the word all in our legal system, in our constitution, in our declaration of independence, we don't really mean all. 
because we always exclude certain groups of people. Um, these people have not always been immigrants. In fact, during a, much of US history, immigrants have been the privileged classes in the United States because the uh, uh, exclusion was defined by race, not by immigration status. Now, in the late 20th century, when many of the immigrants are racially defined as different, they are racialized. Um, immigration and race have been sort of, uh, the racial issues and the immigration issues are overlaid over each other in ways that are, that are different now in the 21st century than they were, say, 200 years ago. Um, but the fact that certain people are racially excluded has been a fact during every single moment of this country's history since 1608. Um, so what's wrong with that? Well, we all know what's wrong with that. Discrimination is wrong. Exclusion is wrong. Unequal treatment under the law is wrong. But that's exactly what our immigration system does. Um, another piece of this puzzle that we need to understand is that most of the refugees who are being incarcerated in these concentration camps today are people who are fleeing places like Central America, especially the Northern Triangle of Central America, the countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, where the United States has been deeply, deeply involved to the, for, for over 100 years, uh, to the extent that we can barely call them separate countries. That is, their politics has been so influenced by the United States, military intervention, economic intervention, political intervention, um, to say, well, oh, those are just countries over there that have nothing to do with us and these people don't belong here. Well, that denies the entire history. The United States would not be the United States without its interventions in Central America. Oh, well, I thought that was quite an excellent um, overview. And I, I like that because when we're talking about the concentration camps at the border today, um, and there's ample news coming up today, stories that Ann and I both saw before we came in. Mike Pence, the vice president, was down. Um, and, and, and even there were 400-something men um, that were in a cage, basically, at the, at the at the place he visited. No shower. They couldn't lie down. No sleeping mats. No access to, to brushing their teeth, etc. Just brutally inhumane conditions. And I think she, she places it very nicely in a historical context, basically saying Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, particularly those countries, although there are many others too, have been directly and overwhelmingly influenced by our foreign policy. Um, things like the United Fruit Company. In other words, we in, in, in Guatemala, um, we overthrew a democratically elected uh, president, Jacobo Arbenz, who was basically going to give some of the land that United Fruit Company had owned back to the peasants. And the United States is like, no, you're not going to do that. And we're going to overthrow. And that led to a, a 30 plus year long brutal civil war in which hundreds of thousands of, of Mayan peasants were slaughtered during this war. And so we are directly, directly responsible as a country for the, the, the deep pauperization, impoverishment of the people of those countries. And so to say, oh, well, now that we've impoverished you as a part of this systemic capitalist imperialist system and now you want to come here and look for refuge and release from the conditions that we created well we're sorry your reward for that will be putting in will be will putting you in cages and 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 treating you in the most inhumane and as she says illegal way uh, blatant violations the way the people of the board are being treated blatantly violating domestic and international law and so I think um, her job of really um, and it's a great clip because it puts it in the the crisis at the border uh, puts it in a, a deep kind of historical context so we can see oh yeah the pauperization the impoverishment of these countries is directly related to capital exploitation and imperial u.s imperialism and that's why they're coming yeah and i just want to add because last week we did a show with hector figuerella who's a venezuelan american and assis castellanos who's uh honduran and we were talking just exactly about this of there's deep poverty and violence happening in both of those countries and that we were making this connection of that if you are against the conditions on the border and the conditions in these migrant, um, in these detention centers and concentration camps, if you're protesting that, if you're saying we don't want those, those camps need to be closed, let those people out, then you are also against U.S. imperialism and intervention in other countries. And you are also then against the pursuit, and I would say just the relentless pursuit of capital by uh, the US empire. Right. And we really need to keep making those connections. And again, like what you have done today and what Avivia Chomsky did, 
so well is put it into this historical context so that we have a better understanding of it. Right. Um, go ahead, Henry. Yeah. Why are people flooding? What and and do they? And and this is just gets a basic core human. I mean, sometimes I just think just on a core human level. Wait a minute, you're fleeing as a result, by the way, of of our policies, brutal gang violence, brutal impoverishment, um, lack of resources. You're fleeing that, and we're saying to the country that's a country of all immigrants, basically, other than Native Americans, you're saying you're not welcome here after the conditions we've helped create. It's just, I mean, just it's so deeply hypocritical and so objectionable on so many levels, and it really goads me because most of us when I teach my students in, in class I say to them when did you come here well, how soon have you been in the United States and most of them their relatives came here within the last hundred years and I'm like well historically that's a drop that's just an, that's a, a blink of an eyelash a hundred years and so that means you're an immigrant basically and how quickly people turn and go oh well you and those people that came often weren't even coming in the kind of conditions that these folks are coming in in other words they, they were escaping poverty and injustice in their own countries but nothing to the level that these folks and we're saying and how quickly the door shuts behind the immigrant is just fascinating to me like that's beautiful work by the powers the elites the powers that be in this country to somehow turn the narrative say oh those people are your enemies and, and yet all the people that are here in this country by and large are immigrants and most of them recent immigrants mm-hmm. i mean we're talking decades which is a nothing historically but yet all of a sudden oh don't come in you you're not welcome well you're an immigrant you are an immigrant. <laughs> right. I think also important to, uh, Vivia talked about this too, but the racialized immigrant too, right? So that, yeah. I mean, my family moved from Australia when I was 10 years old. And so I, oh yeah, I'm an immigrant. But I, I it, actually, I would not say that because right. of the political context of that and that it's so combined with uh, deep racism of this country too. Right, it's true, and that's another way. Of, it's another divide and conquer strategy among the uh, the owners of capital to to make sure that the fight is down in the in the dog pits, and they're they're just above exploiting and and raping and pillaging, while we all kind of fight and like, oh, I hate you, you hate me, and that's a that's a divide and conquer strategy that's going on forever. You think when the Irish migrated here in the 1840s and 50s, they originally treated the same, seen the same as African Americans, the same racialized stereotypes and and brutal discrimination was put upon them until they could lose their accents, until they could blend in because they were white. And so the same kind of divide and conquer strategy has been going on for a very long time in this country around uh, migration and and always look at the enemy, uh, pretend that those the, the, the people that are marching from Central America to the United States are the enemy and right. not the bankers and the industrialists. Yeah. You know, distract from who the real enemy is. Yeah. yeah. We're going to go to a quick PSA. And when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the national day of rally around close the camps and we're going to play a short clip from uh joe levine who is a jewish american and we'll be right back today's programming is brought to you in part by the shoe tree located in downtown brattleboro since 1990 the shoe tree is a family-owned store that provides quality comfort footwear for men and women who value their feet They offer a wide selection of shoes, boots, sandals, slippers, socks, and orthotics. You can visit them at 135 Main Street, online at ShoeTreeVermont.com, on Facebook, or call 802-254-8515. WVW thanks the Shoe Tree for their support of this station. All right, we're back. Uh, you're here with Henry and Anna of Indigo Radio. We're talking about concentration camps. And I just wanted to talk about, I was in Greenfield two days ago. There was a, I think it was July 12th, was a national day of protest, uh, close the camps, abolish ICE protests. And there was quite a big crowd in Greenfield. There was a number of speakers making really good connections between detention centers, prisons in the U.S., um, jails. We were right outside the Franklin County Jail. And I think it was a really important demonstration. I think those connections are really important to think about the profit that is made off of war, the profit that's made off of detaining people, um, whether it's on the border or whether it's at the Franklin, Franklin County Jail. And at the rally, I ran into Dr. Joe Levine, and he's been on the show before. He's a Jewish American. He teaches at UMass Amherst, and he's in really heavily involved with Jewish Voice for Peace and has spoken out a lot um, around Palestine. And 
I was able to just ask him a quick question about concentration camps. So we're going to go to that, and then Henry and I will be right back. I'm here with Professor Joe Levine, Dr. Joe Levine. He's a good friend of Indigo Radio, a professor at UMass Amherst, also a Jewish American and a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. And Joe, I was wondering if you could just respond to the detention centers on the border being called concentration camps and what your thought is on that. Um, I definitely think the term concentration camp um, applies to them. A concentration camp is, there's no technical definition, but the main idea is it's a large detention center that holds lots and lots of people under deplorable conditions and mainly for non-criminal offenses, often people who are not charged with anything. A good example that does not have anything to do with the Holocaust is the detention centers for Japanese Americans during World War II. Most people referred to those as concentration camps. The only thing that they had done wrong was get born Japanese. Similarly, the only thing that these people have done wrong is not be American citizens and exercise their right to ask for asylum. So yes, it definitely makes sense to call them concentration camps. Okay, that was Joe Levine of UMass Amherst and Jewish Voice for Peace talking about what his uh, understanding of concentration camps, very much mirroring what Henry has talked about today. And we're going to use the last bit of time here to talk about the legality. And I'm going to read a quote and then have Henry respond to this. Both U.S. law and international law recognize that refugee situations involve great peril and require nations to allow human beings however they cross the border, to demonstrate that they have a well-founded fear of persecution and that their lives or freedom would be threatened if deported. So, Henry, can you talk a little bit about the legal situation and how the U.S. Um, is acting in illegal ways, really? Sure. Well, there's a couple of different levels. One, one thing that happened um, post-World War II, which was, I think, a good thing was that many uh, after the you know the millions upon millions of people that died as a result of that war and the horror and the holocaust and the the killings the mass killings people that well, we've got to we've got to stop this they created the united nations they created uh, the geneva accords they created um laws about the international declaration of human rights um they they created um international treaties on on migration and so the united states being one of the leaders in the post maybe one could argue the top two or three leaders of the world post-World War II, uh, we signed off on a lot of these treaties, which is kind of interesting. We we signed off on on the, the language that Anna just read, saying that people have a right to migrate, that they have a right to to seek asylum, to to escape from, from harm for their families. And we have both domestic law and international law that we've signed off on as a country. And we these camps on the border directly violate that. People are being held against their will. They're, they're being held in abjectly horrible conditions. The Vice President himself was down on the border just yesterday, the day before, and I think I mentioned this already, and the camps are deplorable. People don't have access to even the basic necessities. And this was a camp, mind you, that they were trying to show, oh, look at how good the conditions are, and the conditions even in the camp. The, the press corps that was with him on the tour, they allowed him in for 90 seconds, and then they kicked him out because of the smell and the conditions were so horrible that they didn't want the press to see any more than they already saw. They originally thought, oh, we'll bring the press in and say, oh, see, it's not that bad, or blah, blah, blah. And then Pence goes along and says, well, see, this is Congress's fault. So he, and that's that's a big theme of the current administration. Well, it's Congress's fault. Well, I would say, well, it's it's the country's fault. It's the administration, both con- congressional and uh, executive. It's their fault because they're the ones that are reinforcing these norms. So anyway, it's blatant, blatantly violating both domestic and international law to treat people in this manner, especially a country like ours, which is nothing if not a country of of migrants and immigrants. That's all we are. Um, but it's consistent. This kind of violation of international law and domestic law is very much, again, as the history of concentration camps is consistent with our behavior, uh, the government's behavior, I should say, all the way through the U.S. history. So, too, is this kind of behavior at least where laws are made. You can take the 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 um, first the Bill of Rights. You can take any number of parts of the Constitution, laws are made, and then they're immediately violated. And so this, unfortunately, this kind of behavior is is almost to be expected by by the elites of the, of the government and, and that they would treat people in this manner, um, which is blatantly violating international and domestic law, is not totally surprising, given the history of how the U.S. government's behaved. Yeah, I also wanted to ask you, as a history social studies teacher, 
and you'll be heading back to school uh, probably sooner than later. <laughs> well, yeah, six uh, weeks. Yeah. So, yeah. so how do you speak to your students about this? I, I mean, I have a couple things. Yeah. Do you think it is important to be talking about this current situation with these students? How do you talk to them about it? And what do you want them to learn? It's funny because I think for teachers, we you're a teacher too, and I think for us, what happens to me is, and I think good teachers do this, or people are trying to be good teachers do this, things come into their view and they go, oh yes, I hadn't thought about it in that way. And so when you ask me about concentration camps, I have taught about, I've taught about Japanese internment, I taught, I've taught about the strategic Hamlet program that was mentioned earlier, but I haven't taught about it thematically. And so one way that would be easy to teach, and I'm thinking about it for this fall because it's kind of, this article is such a, a you know a powerful way of really framing this reality of concentration camps and thinking of it and I should have done this but I just hadn't because like we don't all think of everything all the time you know things come across our our when we're studying and, and learning about the world and and so to me it, it, it fits in really nice I'm teaching a post um, civil war class post civil war to, to World War II basically that's the time period in US history and so there's multiple examples where we can connect um, for example the Dawes Act where, where Native Americans land is expropriated and the final Native Americans are forced onto reservations and what's happening at the border and so the kids I think for learning history I think it's really cool to be able to say oh look I mean not cool like oh Haha, but interesting for them to say, well, this situation at the border is very much tied to the situation with Native Americans, both historically and the present day situation of Native Americans. And so I think it makes it, it brings history alive and, and brings it forward to their lives. Say, here are connections you can make intellectually um, and think about this at a deeper level, which I think is in a way that many adults don't have the opportunity or the time to do, but we're in a class and we can do it together and think critically about the world. It's super rewarding in that way. Well, and I think that as a teacher also and as a person in this world is that we have to continue to think about it's it's the learning, but it's also the action and that we, this is a really urgent time. People are dying. Um, I, there was a woman at the rally that talked about, she was a witness down at Homestead, Florida. She'd come back and she was talking about what she had witnessed she talked about a guy wearing a mask coming out because of the diseases that are spreading and she was fearful of more people are going to die and thinking mm -hmm. about the children that are in there and i and the family separation right family yep. separation mm -hmm. i feel like we have to also think all of us our students ourselves as teachers what are the actions what do we need to do we need to think through these i think these connections are so important because then it it's not just about um, you're against you know these detention centers, these concentration camps. It's what else are you against that yeah. enables this not, to happen? Yeah. Right? What will you not tolerate? Yeah. What will you exactly? Not, yeah. So I think that we got to keep pushing and thinking. We need to be out on the streets. Mm -hmm. I think we need to keep making connections between our struggles and not think of them as individual struggles. Yes. We are just about out of time, and next week we're going to have. Um, Kelly and Josh are going to be on about the Northampton teacher work to what was, what was it called? It's a strike. It's a I don't know. I was going to I was okay. It's you're... a te teacher strike <laughs> going on in in Northampton. Yeah. We um, thank you, Henry, for sharing your info about the the camps and the history. And we're going to go out with a song called uh, "Change Is Going to Come" by Sam Cooke, and it's actually a summer recording by uh, a community chorus project. And we will be back next week. Thanks, everyone.
Change gone.